You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. So we're in week eight, I think it is, of our message series called Urgent Love Letters. Um, and it's been a fun one. We've been reading the, the seven letters to the seven churches that are kind of at the beginning of the book of Revelation, right? Revelation itself is a letter that was written to these churches, but then... Um, there's these sort of individual addresses, right? These individual um, messages that Jesus has for them. And this week, we're going to read another one of those. Now, when was, when was the last time, think about the last time that you really just like longed to be near someone that you love? When was the last time you were kind of separated from somebody that was so near and dear to you that like you just, you just had to be with them? You just needed to be in the same room as they were, and, and like you, you feel just kind of like incomplete until that happens. Um, so this week, our kids experienced this a little bit this week. So Angela and I and Pastors Reese and Mary Margaret, uh, we all went to Phoenix for the Vineyard National Conference. And I just got to say this, the, the, the big takeaway for me from the Vineyard Conference is like God is still with us. I don't, like, that sounds really, like, trite and cheesy, but it's just really true. Like, we're still just as weird as we always have been. But, but we are really blessed as a local church to be a part of something bigger that God is also a part of. I just, oh, man. That helped me sleep good at night. But, uh, but so this week, we were gone for seven days. Angela and I went out to Phoenix a few days earlier because uh, my brother and his awesome family live out in Phoenix, spent a few days with them. So we were gone a total of seven days. So our kids experienced this like longing to be with us. It, it, the, the longing at least kicked in on Wednesday. I heard we left Friday, the longing kicked in Wednesday. That was when the tears began. So at least a few days of, of missing us, right? But we know that feeling that something is incomplete until I'm in the presence of this person that I love and who loves me. And this morning, I've got a message for you guys called Permanent Presence. Permanent presence. And, and the basic idea is just this idea that Jesus opens up permanent admission for us into God's presence. For every single person, Jesus opens up permanent admission into the presence of God. And we're going to be reading in Revelation chapter 3. Um, if you want to go um, press the on button of your Bibles or open up the cover, um, you can read along with me. They'll be up on the, the screen as well. But let's pray. Before we get into the scriptures, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the kind of God who loves us and who communicates with us and who who also desires to be near to us. And we confess, Lord, that sometimes you feel far away. We also confess that sometimes feelings lie. We thank you, God, that there is just always an open door for us to come to you. So so I pray for every single person hearing this, Lord, whether whether they've been walking with you a long time, whether there are those folks that we just talked about who are kind of on the front end of faith, whether we feel so sure of the love of God or we have doubts, wherever we are, God, would you have a word to speak to us today? Pray that your voice would speak to every single person exactly what it is that they need to hear. Pray that your voice would be much more loud than my own. Amen. So here we go. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus is telling this to John. He says, To the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. And see, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, 
Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write my, on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Now, I want to take a look at this through three lenses. You know, whenever we think about Revelation, um, we, we tend to think of, like, the future, right? We think, like, okay, Revelation, it's this apocalyptic book, and maybe we know what that means or don't know what that means or are unsure of what that means, or maybe we consider it a prophetic book, and we're like, we, maybe we know what that means or don't know what it means or we think we know what it means, Right? But we tend to think of it as like talking about way somewhere distant in the future. And at various times throughout history, people have tried to convince us that like this is now, you know, and it all gets really, really confusing. And there's messages of like doom and destruction, and it all seems really scary. Anybody, anybody resonate with that? This is kind of our normal impression of Revelation. It's a bummer, right? Not all true. Hopefully even through this series, you're getting some of that cleared up. Hopefully today will clear up a little bit of that for you. But what I would look at today... I want to look at Revelation a little bit through the future, but before we get to the future, we're going to talk a little bit about the present, then we're going to talk about the past, then, then, then we can understand what's going on in the future. Does that kind of make sense? Right? Present, past, future. Boom. First, the present. Now, and when I say the present, what I mean is the present time in which this letter was actually written. So I want to talk about in the present, who are the author, who's the author, and who are the recipients? Who's writing this letter? Right? And, and who are the people that are supposed to be receiving this letter? Um, now, and, and according to this letter, because this is a real letter written in real time, this was John on the island of Patmos, right? He has this vision in real time, right? And, and Jesus is present to him and starts telling him these things to write down. So he's sort of like he's the scribe, right? He's, he's like the courtroom like stenographer or whatever you call that person, right? Okay, just taking notes, send them on. And in each of these like, kind of individual addresses to these churches, um, Jesus is described in like a little bit different ways. Have you noticed this? Like it's really interesting. And I think in each one, I think he's addressed like in different ways that that church needs to hear, right? And so maybe in different ways that you or I need to hear him addressed. And this is, this is when he starts off, he's like, the one who's holy and true. And we're like, okay, good. I've come down with holy and true. I can kind of follow that. And then he says, who holds the key of David. And if you're like me, that's the point you go, What? Like, I get to preach this one? What does, key is da- what does key of David mean, right? He says, he's the one who holds the key of David, and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open, right? Right out the gate here in verse 7. Now, these are images, right? 
that are meant to evoke something to our minds. And so this image of key, this is an image of power. It's an image of authority. We even sort of have this today in our culture, right? When if there's some really great person who does something notable, who is from a particular city, they'll have this ceremony and the mayor of the city will like hand, give them the keys to the city, right? And it's usually some big, weird, gaudy looking key that you know isn't actually gonna open anything, you know? <laughs> But, but it's a symbol of something, right? It's a symbol of gratitude. It's a symbol of saying you are someone important here. And this is an actual key, though. Like, it's like it means Jesus has power, that Jesus has authority, all right? Now, it's not just any key. He could have said it's the key to the whole world, or it's the key of heaven, or it's the key of our God, or it's the key of someone else. But he specifically says this is the key of David, right? Like if he pulls out his key ring, this one's got a little like plastic thingy around it that he bought at Lowe's or something. It's like engraved. It says David, you know, it's David's key, right? Custom made. And what this means, David is a reference to, if you're not that familiar with the Bible, David was like the greatest king of Israel, okay? The one who was like one after God's own heart, it says. But this is the king that it was promised and prophesied that his reign would never end, right? That he was going to die, but that somehow through his line, his, his kingdom would never, ever, ever end. And of course, this leads all the way up to Jesus of Nazareth when he is born, right? That here is the king, the, the, the descendant of David who's coming to bring the rule and reign of God to earth. And then when he's, he's resurrected from the dead... It's proof that death no longer has mastery over him, and this kingdom is therefore going to end for, go on forever and ever and never end. So this key is the image of power and authority. David means that this is never going to end, right? He has this power. He has this authority for this kingdom that's going to last forever. So his, his opening, right, and his closing can never be reversed by anyone else. Right? In our experience, we're accustomed to power or authority being temporary. All our power is temporary. Authority has an end date. Influence, influence has a shelf life. It doesn't last for forever, but not so with Jesus. Right? His power, his authority, his influence is going to go on forever. So this is the author. This is the one who's writing to them. And this is important when we understand what's going on in this particular church. So this is a church in a city called Philadelphia, right? It's not Pennsylvania. So sorry to disappoint you. Love a good cheesesteak. Not the same place. Um, this is in what is now is Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey, right? So if that helps orient you a little bit. This is far more inland, right, than some of the previous churches. that This letter began getting distributed on the coast, and it kind of makes this circuit, right? Philadelphia is the second-to-last city on this circuit, but it's important we understand, like, like, that these are real people, all right? These are real people in a real church, just like you guys today are real people in a real church, right? If you're visiting from out of town and you have, like, your home church, right, you guys are real people in a real church, like, living real lives. And so John, he, he's in real exile. <laughs> this is not metaphor. He's, it's a real bummer of a situation, right? He's in real exile on a real island out in the middle of the Mediterranean called Patmos, um, and he's being commanded by Jesus to write a real letter. He's, he's writing this down as a good scribe that is then going to be distributed to real people living on the real mainland under the real power of the Roman Empire. It's important. The real oppressive power of the Roman Empire who are facing real world troubles that other religious folks are causing for them. Right? 
It's all very tangible in the real world. And he's writing them these letters. Why? So that they can be real Jesus followers. So that they can live as if Jesus really is Lord and Caesar is not. So they can live with that kind of real hope in the future. So here they were, right? These followers of Jesus in the city of Philadelphia in Asia, Asia Minor. And Jesus addresses to them, his address to them tells us something about their situation. And this is a little tricky because sort of like if you're reading the letters of Paul, right? If you read the book of Romans, if you read some of the really specific ones um, to like Timothy or something like this, the difficulty is we're, we're reading someone else's mail, right? And I know, I'm sure you guys never do that, but you're doing it when you read the Bible, right? At least a lot of these New Testament letters, we're reading someone else's mail. And the trouble with reading someone else's mail is you're only getting half the story, Right? We know for a fact that some of the churches wrote Paul letters back, but we don't have those, right? so we're missing half the conversation. But we can read between the lines and we can figure some stuff out. So Jesus says this about this church. This is not flattering. It's not exactly flattering. He says, I know that you have little strength. Thanks. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Well, so glad you noticed. Right? Now I want to unpack these two things. So little strength, right? This is not a cut down. Uh, this is not a Jesus burn. That's what my kids would call it. Ooh, Jesus burn. But he's comparing this group of, of his followers to this other group that he refers to as the synagogue of Satan. That's sort of a Jesus burn. Um, now, I won't go into too much detail about this because this group, because it already came up in the letter to Smyrna. I talked about them at length um, in a sermon from a few weeks ago, actually called Staying Faithful to the Faithful One. Um, but in short, here's the deal with this synagogue of Satan, right? They, they were an angry, accusing crowd. They were like out for vengeance. They were out for blood. And this group of Jews, they were quite numerous, and, and they held a whole lot of social and civic power in the city, a lot more than this little ragtag group, uh, the sect of Judaism that followed Jesus as the Messiah, and so this, this group that Jesus calls the synagogue of Satan, right, the accuser, right, is where Satan, what Satan means, um, the, this group was not keen on this new sect of Judaism that claimed to follow the true Messiah, who had certainly been killed. They all believed that he had been killed, but now supposedly was resurrected from the dead, and they're kind of starting this new thing. They did not like that. So they were making life difficult. They were making life difficult for this small group of Jesus followers, this, this gathered church of Jesus in the city of Philadelphia. And we don't know, we don't know exactly how many people there were, right? It could, it could have been like a dozen of these believers. It could have been 20, it could have been 30 or 40 or 50 even, maybe, at this time period. But they were outnumbered by the thousands. They had relatively little power, little social influence, little economic resources, all of that in comparison. So we have, we have this local church of Jesus versus the synagogue of Satan. We have, we have little power versus much power. And, and so you, you should notice this power dynamic already happening because what did Jesus already address himself as? The one who has all the power. The one who has the key. And not any key, the key of David. This key is not going to be taken away. So the real issue, which, which is most likely the thing that has, has these other Jews really riled up, becomes who are God's real people? This is, this is what was the issue. Who is God's real people? Who are the ones who truly belong to Yahweh? 
Who are the ones that, that he is going to admit into his kingdom at the end of all things? Who, who is in and who is out? You know, ang- angry, accusing crowds, especially if they happen to be religious ones, always seem to be really big on defining who is in and who is out, don't they? Don't we? This is what was going on, right? So tricky times, little power, little power. But Jesus tells them, in spite of all this, in spite of the pressures, in spite of the difficulties you're facing, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Oh, man, if Jesus says anything close to that to me, I'll be happy. Right? Despite the mounting social pressures, this church has been resiliently faithful to the faithful one. And, and real faithfulness, guys, is always hard fought. If you've tried to follow Jesus for more than a week, you know what I'm talking about. If you've been doing it no more than a decade, you really know what I'm talking about. Real faithfulness is always hard fought, but it's always worth it. And it's important for us to understand this. We'll talk more about this towards the end. But so there we go. This is, this is the present, right? This real time, in, in, there's this present day where John is writing this letter from Jesus to this real church. And now let's talk a little bit about the past. We're going to talk about what Jesus has done already. Before we get to the future, we've got to understand what Jesus will do. We've got to talk about what Jesus has done. Now, he's done a lot of things. In context, though, of this passage, he's, he's telling them that he's done two things. These are great. Two things he has already done for them. He says, first, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And note this, right? Jesus, he's like, well, I started with the key metaphor. I'm just going to run with it. All right? So I've got a key. What have I done? Um, I've opened a door for you. He doesn't just hold the key of David. He uses it. And not just, not just uses it and not just will use it at some point in the future. It, the, the verb tense here, and it's true in the Greek as well, it's he has used it. Right? In English, we call this the past perfect tense. Right? Something that has already been done. It isn't something that this church has to wait on. It isn't something that might happen. It's not even a promise of what will come to pass. The door is already open. This door, whatever that means, is already open. Now, apparently, though, there's at least threat of this door being closed, right? He he reminds them a couple of times, right? What I open, nobody can close. What I close, nobody can open. He repeats this. I think this is why Jesus, he's, he's being emphatic about this because this other synagogue of Satan is trying to close the door. They're trying to convince these people that, no, 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 the door is actually closed to you. Now, here's what I want to propose, and as we go on, hopefully this will be obvious to you. I, what is the door? What is this door? And it could be like, we use this metaphor too, right? We talk about a door as in like an opportunity, Right? A door opened for me for this new position at my job, or a door opened for me to build a relationship with my neighbor. We mean an opportunity. So what is this door? What is this opportunity that God is opening to them? I think that what Jesus is getting at here is this door that is open is open to God's love and his presence. He has opened a door for them to walk through and enter into God's love and his presence. Now, part of where this is coming from, I think, is because the next thing that Jesus says he has done, right? I have placed before you an open door that no one will shut, right? Then he says, I have loved you. I have loved you. 
This is the heart of Jesus. And I love, I love this, right? And this is actually even in Greek. It's a slightly different Greek tense. Like, it's past, but it's like it's still happening, right? He's not saying, well, I used to love you, <laughs> you know? Jesus, burn, right? It's not I used to love you, but then you messed up. It's not I will love you in the future, and it's not I do love you now. It's, it's I have always loved you. And parents, you know what this is like when you say this to your children. Oh, I, I've loved you, Right? before they were even born, right? I have loved you. This is the heart of God. This is the heart of Jesus. This is why we're calling this sermon series, right? Urgent love letters, because it's just flowing out of the heart of love that Jesus has for us. And, and this is apparently part of what the synagogue of Satan was upset about, right? Because this is why Jesus says, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Why? Because they've been denying it, Right? They've been disavowing it. They're refusing to acknowledge, no, 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 no. God doesn't love you. He loves us. No, 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 no. You are not his people. We are his people. No, no. You're not invited into God's presence. Only we are invited into God's presence. And we got to remember, right, that the angry mob, the accusing crowd is always defined by who they are against. They're always defined by who it is that they're trying to keep out. And Jesus says, but I have loved you, and they're going to see it. Now, the, the, the crazy thing about this is Jesus loves them too, <laughs> right? He doesn't say, I don't love them. They can't even understand that God loves them because they can't understand how God loves the other people. We can't understand how, God, how much God really loves us, loves us if we can't understand how much he loves other people. The Bible is super clear on this. So there we go. The, the love, right? This is the open invitation to the love of God. Now, what about the presence of God? To do this, we're going to jump into uh, what Jesus will do. So there's the two things Jesus has done. He's opened a door. He has loved them. Now what Jesus will do. He goes on, if you read the rest of the text again, he goes on with some encouragements to them, some exhortations to his church. But then in verse 12, we have what is perhaps the strangest most mysterious, and I think most brilliantly wonderful thing that Jesus has to say to this small little ragtag bunch of followers in Philadelphia. He says, to the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Weird. Has anyone ever made you a temple? Like made you a pillar, I mean? I don't. I like moving around. Metaphor, never again will they leave the temple. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write my new name on them, right? Well, how many things are you writing on them, Jesus, right? All of it. Jesus is going to graffiti us, right? This is what he's saying, like, all right, this is strange. Now, check this out. I think in order to understand this, here's what we got to understand about temple. You guys ready to do a little Bible study? All right. We're going to go, we're going to jump all the way back. We're going to go Genesis to Revelation, okay? I'm serious. I'm going to do it quick, though. Don't worry. We, what we need to understand about the word temple and the temple language, I would say, sometimes it uses the word temple, sometimes it doesn't, but temple language in the Bible always refers to the intersection of heaven and earth, okay? 
the, any place where, where heaven and earth, we, and we think of heaven and earth, right? Heaven is God's realm. We think of earth as our realm of existence, right? But then the temple is a place where those overlap, where we can experience the presence of God, where God's presence dwells um, in New Testament language, especially, but also in the old. This is where his kingdom comes to reign, where his rule is enacted, right? Temple means the intersection of heaven and earth. Um, it, it means more in the Bible than just like a building devoted to worship. Um, it's more than just like a location where religious rites are observed. It's attempting to talk about this place where the invisible reality of God's creation and the visible reality of God's creation come together. This is exciting. So real quick, we're going to trace the trajectory of temple from the beginning all the way to the end. And where it all starts is in the garden, all right? This all starts in the garden of Eden, right? The very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse two, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is really cool, okay? Because throughout the Bible, whenever we talk about the spirit of God, it's oftentimes referring to the presence of God, right? So God's presence, and this word hovering even means like, like a mother hen brooding over her chicks, right? This loving presence of God is caring for and tending to this, this burgeoning creation that is coming to life. Now, now some scholars take the, this, these creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2 as being very little, right? It happened in six 24-hour periods. Some scholars take it as a more of a metaphorical poem. I would propose that whether you believe it was a literal six days or six ages or some other like, like span of time, I don't believe that that detracts from the core meaning of what Genesis is about. Because here's the thing. The important thing about the two first chapters of Genesis, this is going to color the way you read the whole rest of the Bible. So we're going to camp out here. The other ones will be faster. The important thing about Genesis is not the how of creation and it's not about the when of creation, but it's about the who and the why of creation, Right? How did it happen? Man, I don't know. Like, when did it happen over what span of time? Man, I don't know. But I do know who did it. And we get a lot of clues as to why he did it. The picture that we get is of a wholly united cosmos, right? That what, we, what we call heaven and earth uh, in the beginning are perfectly united as, as essentially God's full reality. This is why, like, there's these strange uh, mentions in the beginning of Genesis about, like, Adam and Eve would just, like, walk in the garden with God. Like, God was not separated somewhere else. They were not separated somewhere else. It's this lush paradise where everything is just, like, brimming with the life of God, right? And there's no division at all between anyone or anything. This is the original temple, this is the original, unspoiled, uninterrupted, undisturbed, unbroken intersection of heaven and earth. It was glorious. Now, of course, it all goes south from there, right? The bad news, division came through sin. And from here on out in the Bible, temple is always a signpost back to the garden. It's always a signpost back to, you remember, you remember when, right? So check this out. In the Bible, it goes from temple I mean, it goes from garden to the tabernacle slash temple. And I'm kind of lumping these together. They're roughly the same. The tabernacle was the mobile place where they would go to worship and where the presence of God dwelled when they were in the wilderness. The temple being the more established actual stone and metal structure set up in Jerusalem where the presence of God dwelled. And if they wanted to be near the presence of God, they went to the temple. The cool thing is, if you go back and if you read some of the descriptions 
of the tapestries that were hung in the tabernacle, right? The, the bronze and other metalwork that was done in the temple is that all the decoration was designed to point worshipers back to the garden. And it's kind of like over the top, right? Because they really wanted people to get this point. Uh, for example, go read 1 Kings 7. If you read in 1 Kings 7, the temple is decorated mostly like in bronze with like rows and rows of hundreds of pomegranates. Anybody love pomegranates? Yep, love pomegranates. It's pomegranate season. Go get you some. Rows and rows of hundreds of pomegranates all over. Um, There were lilies at the top of the columns, these pillars, right? So we're talking about pillars. There were lilies at the top of the pillars that were like six feet in diameter. There was a, they called it a sea, which was this giant basin for water in the center that was cast out of metal that was rimmed all around it with gourds. You know, gourds would like, they'll hang like on vines. It's like these gourds just rimming the entire sea. And this whole sculpture was set on top of the statues of like 12 bulls, right? We have the animal kingdom in here as well. There were also, there's lions, there's floral wreaths, there's angels, there's palm trees, the garden. When you go to worship, you are entering into the garden so that you can walk into the church, you can walk into the temple and go, oh. Unification of heaven and earth. This temple, God's unique dwelling place on earth, was a reminder that God's dwelling place, once upon a time, was in the entire heavens and the entire earth. And even at this time, even in this setting, like the worshipers among Israel were not merely looking back nostalgically to the past, like, oh man, wasn't that great way back then, the good old days, you know? But they were also looking hopefully into the future when all things would be put to rights. So here we go. Garden to the tabernacle slash temple. Then we get to Jesus. This is when it gets really good, guys. Jesus, fully man and fully God, was the perfect intersection of heaven and earth, right? Absolute perfect intersection of heaven and earth. And even he referred to himself as the temple. You guys remember this? This is crazy talk, right? But Jesus loves metaphors. And you know in his mind he was like, I'm going to trip their brains out a little bit. So he said in John 2, he was doing a bunch of miracles. He's teaching. The Jews are getting mad. Like, what authority do you think you have? And he says, I'll tell you. They they said, uh, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Right? And Jesus answered them, I will destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, odds are they're standing near the temple, the actual temple. And he says, destroy this temple, raise it again in three days. They're like, no, you won't. They said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. And then, end quote, John adds his little addendum. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus says, you think this temple over here that is pointing back to the garden, you think this is the temple? Nah, sort of, not really. I'm the temple right here. It's not a temple that's bound to one location, but I'm walking all around. Right? Anyone who's, this is why anyone who like, they would, remember the woman who walked up and she just touched Jesus' cloak and she's healed? Because it was the intersection of heaven and earth, man. That's the kind of stuff that happens. So this was more than just a metaphor for his resurrection. It was yet another declaration that the fullness of kingdom of God had come to earth in his very person. Something's happening. Something's happening. This also incidentally, This is why no one comes into God's kingdom except through him. 
Oftentimes in Christianity, right, like, it's tough. Christianity uses exclusive language oftentimes, and sometimes in a very pluralistic society, and it's only, we're only going to get more so, sometimes that just that rubs people wrong. And I totally get it, right? I don't really like it either sometimes, but this is why. It's not just because God says, no, you're not playing by my rules. I'm not letting you in, right? He's not that whiny. That's the way we do it. The reason that Jesus is the only way to the Father is because he is the only, he's the purest intersection of heaven and earth. It's why he even refers to himself as the door, right? He grabs his language. Because it's impossible to live at the intersection of heaven and earth. It's impossible to one day enter into the full reality of the reunification of heaven and earth apart from the fullness of the reality that that connecting point is Jesus. It's all Jesus. So we go from the temple, right? This language goes from the garden to the tabernacle in the temple to Jesus and then on into the New Testament to the church. So check this out. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on all of Jesus' followers at Pentecost, the church was born. And by church, I mean capital C, right? Vineyard Church of Augusta or even the vineyard as a whole, like we're just one tiny little corner of all of that. This is the entirety of all of the people of God. The church was born on Pentecost. And I think in a sort of callback to the Spirit hovering over the waters at creation like a bird, at Pentecost, he now hovered over God's people like a flame. Same Spirit doing the same creative, regenerative work. And in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and the temple, God's, God's presence would come like a column of smoke, or it would come like a fire in the tabernacle or the temple. But now the Spirit of God filled up a whole bunch of human beings with the same present that previously filled a single building. The temple of God is now comprised of human flesh rather than stone and precious metals. And instead of people having to then come to the temple to enter into God's presence, God's temple is going out into the whole world to take his presence to everyone else. They don't need to come here. They don't. Nobody who needs Jesus, nobody who needs the regenerative work that happens when heaven intersects earth, they don't need to come here to our church. Now I'm a pastor like I want them to. And I like you guys, so like I want them to come here and meet you guys. They don't need to come here. They need you to go there. And it just happens, man. You can clap a little. It's okay, good. It's good. I'm off script. Paul says this explicitly. I started preaching for a moment. Paul says this. Check this out. 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you yourselves, this is plural. He's not talking to you, Gabe. He's not talking to, to you, Bill. He's not talking to you, Angela. He's talking to you all, right? This is the plural y'all. I'll get Southern for a minute. Dang, right? Don't you know that y'all yourselves? No, that's not right. Don't you know that y'all y'all selves? Is that right? Is that how you do that? You don't. Now you know that all y'all. I'm trying. Thank you. Good night. Be sure to tip your waitresses. Do you not know that all y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Don't you know that? I forget it. And it's worse when you're a pastor because sometimes you show up because it's your job, right? Just being honest. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Don't you know that you all are the intersection of heaven and earth and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Oh. 
So it's, then it becomes the church. It's this bigger, broader thing that's not just one person moving around earth, taking the temple, the intersection of heaven and earth everywhere. It's a bunch of us. And then finally, it goes from Jesus to the church to the new temple slash new Jerusalem. These kind of have to go together. This is what we just read in Revelation, right? He's describing this new temple that's going to be built. And somehow, like, we're the pillars, right? With giant six-foot lilies on our heads. And Jesus graffiti all over us. And then, but this language of new Jerusalem, guys, it only occurs twice in the Bible. Both of them are in Revelation. One of them is here in chapter 3, and the other one's at the very end of chapter 21, right? But with this whole temple idea, he's like, they will never leave it. Which I guess once you're a pillar, you can't. You know, you're kind of stuck. That's the good news. But this language of New Jerusalem, right? This temple was in this city where people would have to go. But now something new and totally different is happening. No longer is the temple going to be built out of stone and precious metals and precious jewels. It's going to be built out of human beings. And neither is this new city going to be exactly what we thought that it was going to be. But check out what John writes in chapter 21. This is the second time when he's talking about the new Jerusalem, right? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Doesn't mean they were destroyed, okay? It's just they're different. You know how the old, once you come to Christ, like the old you has passed away, right? You're still here. You're still breathing. The new, the earth is still here. The earth is still breathing. It's just new. There was no longer any sea. That's weird. That makes me sad. I don't understand that part. No surfing in heaven. But this new heaven and new earth comes down. And he says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Same language we just read in, in, in verse 3. In chapter 3. This new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. <laughs> and he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He's making all things new. And these pillars made of human beings rather than stone, are going to last for forever because the power of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, his power lasts forever. They will always be in his temple. They will always be in his presence. The door is open for us guys for permanent presence with God. And everything's not going to be destroyed. If somebody tells you that Revelation is the story of how everything's going to get burned up and destroyed and we're all going to like float off like ghosts into heaven, they're telling you wrong. <laughs> they're reading it wrong. You read the end. Heaven comes down to earth. They become one once again. 
It doesn't come down for a big battle. It comes down for a wedding. This reunification where all things are made new. Let me just close with a couple of exhortations to you guys. First of all, if you're here and you're listening to this and like, and like you, you're, you like don't believe, and you're like, man, this is crazy and I don't know about Jesus, but you feel something stirring in your heart, let me just tell you right now, the door is open for you. He's holding it open for you. And no one can shut it. There are a lot of people who will try to shut it, whether intentionally or not. But access to his love and his presence is open to you. The thing about an open door is you still have to choose to walk through it. You are still in one location. You, you have to make that choice to move into that other location. The invitation is there. Maybe today is the day that you can accept that invitation. If you've never accepted that invitation that Jesus is extending to you to walk into his love and presence, like I would love to pray with you. I'd love to answer your questions and help walk you through that today. I know any of our pastoral staff or when our prayer folks are up here, any of us would love to pray with you and walk with you through that. He's not going to push you through the door. But he's inviting you. Second, to, to you all that are believers, right? If you're like followers of Jesus, you know you belong to him. Stay in the room. You've walked through the door, like, like stay in the room. Because in the same way, the door is also open. It didn't get locked shut behind you. And I'm not talking about can you lose your salvation or whatever. But we can choose to live our days in God's presence or out of God's presence. In terms of our like awareness and our reality. We can choose to live where we are, are aware of his love for us, or we can choose to forget. Stay in the room. Be like the Philadelphians. Keep his word. Don't deny his name. Endure patiently. Hold on to what you have. That's what, that's what being victorious looks like in the context of this passage.